Welcome to PrismaCast, the podcast of Prisma Center for Jewish Day Schools. My name is Rachel Dratch, Associate Director of Educational Innovation here at Prisma, and this podcast is part of an amazing series called Startup Day School, envisioned and produced by Mr. Josh Gold, who is not only the middle school principal at the Hafter School in Lawrence, New York, but is also pursuing a doctorate at Yeshiva University. Without further ado, here's Josh with Startup Day School. Welcome to the inaugural episode of the Startup Day School. I am your host. My name is Joshua Gold. I'm the principal of Hafter Middle School. I want to give a big thank you to Prisma for giving us the opportunity to create the space uh, for this kind of dialogue amongst school leaders to talk about uh, relevant topics, uh, all kinds of things that are going on uh, in day schools uh, currently. Uh, the name of the podcast uh, really is uh, drives what we do here, uh, and it is uh, driven by uh, something that I believe strongly as a school leader, which is that a goal for schools is to cultivate a school environment that has the energy of a startup company. Uh, there should be an energy of collaboration, uh, being the value that drives the work as uh, teachers share best practices uh, and collaboratively innovate to uh, develop next practices as well. And so it's with that spirit in mind that this podcast is meant to create a space for school leaders to come together to, as we said, share best practices and collaboratively develop next practices. So. I am so excited to be here with our first guest, uh, Rabbi Yaakov Sadi, the head of school of Hank West Hempstead Campus. Uh, and we're going to be talking about a few different things. Um, but really, what we're before we jump into the, the crux of this uh, podcast, which is really going to be around uh, student support, discipline paradigms, things of that nature, uh, first we want to we just hear, Rabbi, thanks so much for joining us. Uh, Tell us who you are, which is a very existential question, but you know, professionally, who are you? Josh, um, thank you so much for having me on your first inaugural podcast. That's an honor in itself. So, oh, yeah. It's a pleasure to do this with you. Um, well, I was born in Iran, um, and uh, we left in 1980 um, when the revolution started. Came to America, my first three, four years was in public school. I uh, did not really... Uh, was not really introduced to yeshiva until almost uh, the age of bar past the age of bar mitzvah, and I ended up in a very special school called Ezra Academy, mm -hmm. and um, had phenomenal teachers that really inspired me, and from there I went on to learn in Israel, and by chance one day uh, the principal of Ezra, who was Rabbi Freilich, called me up at Shari Yashav and said, "What are you doing tomorrow?" I said, I'm in Rabbi Yeager's shear, and I guess I'll be going to shear. He goes, well, I have an opening. And I said, Rabbi, it's November. He goes, well, you were an Ezra boy yourself. Yeah, so you get it. You understand these kids, and I need you here tomorrow at 7.30. I'm going to put you in a 10th grade. So I reported to Ezra Academy at 7.30, and there I was teaching 10th grade. And you know what I bet he saw? There's a great article from a number of years ago by Malcolm Gladwell where they studied all the, or he studied all these different factors that, that were contributing to teacher efficacy because he was curious in a very Malcolm Gladwell way, what is it that makes great teachers? Is it uh, you know, where they went to school, how high up their degrees go, uh, what kind of mentorship they had, was it the principal, was it you know, how they spent their formative years? 
And what he found is, and this is again very Malcolm Gladwell, he 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 coined the phrase "with itness," right? How with it is a teacher? How much do they kind of? I'm right. snapping right now for those who are listening. How much do they kind of get it? How much can they sort of dance? How much rhythm do they have in the classroom? And it sounds like he saw that in you. Yeah, you know, and and I trusted his guidance that he thought that this would be something that'd be good for me and good for the school. And I ended up teaching there 12 years, a, a school that had changed my life and right. gave me a chance to give back. And I started sharing my afternoons with uh, Yeshiva Central Queens. I was mm-hmm. a fifth grade rabbi. Yeah. And um, I was offered the position of assistant principal, Yeshiva Central Queens. And I stayed there for eight years as assistant principal. And then Hank was searching for a new um, head of school for the elementary school. And I... Um, been here for eight years wow. at Hank, and it's been an amazing ride, a real, uh, a real treat. That's amazing. Yeah. That's amazing. And and I know you do incredible things here. And one Thank of the you. things that prompted this conversation was we share a, a kind of a, a appreciation of a couple of figures that that are going to drive this conversation. Again, this conversation is around how to create a a, a positive paradigm for student interventions with a particular focus on behavior, right? How do we create a healthy environment to not only hold students accountable, but support them in ways to kind of position them to be their best selves? And I know some of the work that you've been doing focuses on people like Ross Green uh, and Larry Thompson. Can you tell us a little bit about who those folks are to you and how they inform uh, your philosophies pedagogically? Yeah, no, just I just spoke at a conference at the South Florida Regional Conference and the topic of my session was building relationships that improve student academics and behavior. And I began by telling the following story that when I started at Hank, when I got in the job, I started meeting with every teacher and I cannot tell you how many of them said, we need help, we need support. The, the current practices in place right now are not working. And Wait, just to pause right there. Yeah. What are the typical current practices? If you said like for most schools, uh, not most schools now, because I think a lot of schools are doing a really good job of this. But for a lot of schools who may be sort of like in the more traditional models of student discipline, what would you say those are? So, you know, whether it's taking a few minutes from recess or taking something away from a child or sending them home for the day, um, anything that comes across as punitive to a child, because we know that punishment suppresses a child. It doesn't teach them the skills that they're missing. So upon hearing this from the teachers, I had a couple of months to figure out, you know, what paradigm uh, shift was I going to put into place at Hank? Because the teachers are feeling very frustrated right. that no matter what they're trying, it's not working. And that goes along with incentives as well. They were they were giving out prizes and incentives and having parties. Right. But I realized that, you know, here is where the legendary work of Ross Green uh, with his work, um, the book that I'm most fond of and a lot of educators are familiar with is Lost at School. Yes. I I realized that we we have to um, jump on that bandwagon and um, change the the mindset that um, children, I mean, he has a great saying that I love. He says that it's not that a child is giving you a hard time mm-hmm. the child is having a hard time yes so when 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 we brought teachers on board to understand that johnny it's not that johnny doesn't want to do his homework it's not that johnny doesn't want to listen it's not that johnny doesn't want to sit down johnny can't listen can't sit down can't do his work right and uh, we, here's where larry thompson comes in and we're here to be coaches 
and these children are struggling and we can coach them. You know, Larry Thompson says, a, you know, um, has a great analogy of this teacher who's carrying this very heavy backpack. Mm-hmm. You know, we're holding all their emotional issues and their academic issues and, you know, the executive functioning that they're missing. And he says, why don't we go and just unload that backpack for them? Right. You know, take one brick out at a time. And that child starts walking with a much lighter backpack. So um, we began in year one, and there's no magic formula. Mm-hmm. Um, and teacher by teacher um, started seeing that this really works. And, yes. you know, punishment wasn't working. It was only suppressing a child. Right. And it, they came back two days later, and they were um, involved in the same behaviors again. Right. Because we didn't do anything to change their behaviors or teach them the skills that they were missing. Right. The, the, the big like revolution of Ross Green's work, and again, if folks are listening and have not read the book Lost at School, uh, highly encourage it because it's, it's really a tremendous read. But the big shift that his work uh, kind of put into education was historically consequences, consequences and incentives were the only motivators for good behavior and the only kind of structure that schools knew how to put into place. And the problem with that is, first off, it's predicated on the belief that students do well when they want to, that the only issue is motivation. And so if we can provide consequences to deter them from bad behavior and incentives to incentivize good behavior, then we're going to get the kind of behavior that we want. But it does not address Ross Green's research, which identifies that that's not the case, that students don't do well when they want to, they do well when they can and when they have the skills to do it. And so the formula that was really missing, or at least the missing ingredient for the formula, was that consequences are certainly necessary at times, and there's opportunity, you know, there's certainly situations where, you know, kids do need to be held accountable, and kids should always be held accountable. Um, But if we're not teaching, if we are not uh, providing supports as part of that intervention, I always say at my school, um, you know, when when there is behavioral issues, there are two arms to the intervention. There is the consequence arm, and that consequence arm, to uh, as much as we can, should be restorative, right? What can I do to make this right to the degree that I can, right, for the student? But then the other arm is support, because Ross Green is famous for saying, if uh, you know, if a student doesn't know how to swim, we don't punish them; we teach them how to swim, right? And so that's why his work is, has, you know, was such a game changer for so many people. How do you talk to teachers, though? Because a lot of times students might uh, engage in behavior where there has to be there have to be consequences, right? How how do, how do we shift to a place of supporting students without losing um, sort of you know that that piece of it? Yeah, that's an important uh, point you're bringing up, Josh. Th- there's a, a myth that people think that you know this means we give the children passes, and, right? And you know there are no consequences, so. The consequence in itself is that this child has a skill that he's missing and he's in, in, in the midst of a dilemma that he has to figure out. Yes. We're just there to be his coach. I mean, I, I'll, tell, I'll tell you a story that I'm, I share at, at, at all the conferences um, where I speak about behavior. Right. Um, a couple of years ago, our um, custodian came to me in tears. I thought there was something wrong or he was ill. Right. And I said, what, 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 what's going on? He goes come over here, I want to show you something. And he shows me the, the boys' bathroom, and he said, I, about an hour ago, I cleaned it up where you could lick off the floor. Look what they've done. Right. They'd taken wet, wet paper towels, and right. they decorated you know, the walls. And right. the, so I said, here's a cup of coffee. You're off for the next hour. I'll take care of it. Right. 
So I found out who the two boys were, and I mm-hmm. asked them, hey, boys, uh, do you know who our custodian is? Right. And what his name is? They said, uh, no, not really. I said, well, let me tell you. His name is Omar. Mm-hmm. Um, and he uh, he gets here every day like me. He's dressed very nicely. He has a car. He has mm-hmm. a family. Mm-hmm. And uh, today, he doesn't have such a great story to tell about our yeshiva. Right. He doesn't know too much about yeshivas other than what he sees here. Right. And um, he's going to go home with a, a really sad story. So their heads dropped. And they said, well, what do we do? I said, I'm not sure. I've had a wonderful day. I stand at the bus and I say good morning to every child by their first name when they get off. I said good morning to the secretaries. I popped into every class. The kids are doing great. I've had a wonderful day. You guys haven't. What would you like to do about it? Mm-hmm. And here's where the consequence comes in. they got to figure this out. Right. So one of the boys said, I think the first thing we, we need to do is clean the bathroom. I go, that's, that's great. Yes. Then the boy said, well, now that we know what his name is, maybe we acknowledge him every morning and we say good morning to him by his name. Mm-hmm. And the other boy said, well, maybe in, 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 in the cafeteria when he's struggling sometimes and he needs another pair of hands. Mm-hmm. Good. So look what we were able to accomplish in those three, four minutes rather than previously we would call home and say i just want you to know right. your sons what they did was despicable and it's a disgrace and this is embarrassing right we would not be able to accomplish what we accomplish by me serving as a coach to them and saying you did some you made some poor choices here mm-hmm. let me be your coach and let's figure this out together and i think what's brilliant about that is that it 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 addresses two things number 1 What's the deficiency skill-wise in the students? And there was certainly some empathy deficiency here that they could not appreciate that making this mess required somebody else to clean it up. And so I think that by addressing uh, that piece of it, it's a huge, huge uh, uh, home run. But the other piece is, how do we then restore what was broken, right? And in this case, it was obviously the bathroom, but more than that, um, someone was disrespected here. Someone and something was disrespected here. And so by creating a... a, a a resolution, a um, coming back together, a, a fixing of the relationship. I think that's a really brilliant way to do that. So, Rabbi, that yeah, that sound that's great, and I totally, totally agree with that. So, let me ask you a question. So, these types of practices, uh, I imagine, have had transformative for the positive impacts on your school. Um, but does this kind of work contain itself only to creating a better school, or does it have applications broader than this, deeper than this, further, more longitude? It's a great question, Josh. While, you know, we're proud when people come and visit the school and they say your, your hallways are so quiet and the children are so well behaved and, uh, and, you know, we are doing very well with collaborative problem solving. This goes way beyond uh, their years, uh, you know, from uh, nursery through 12. And, you know, the, the data is getting back to us from the workforce is that more than ever, um, the children don't have the coping skills to... Mm-hmm. Um, to be able to manage at work or in their marriages or you know we saw all the scandals that took place with with admissions into the universities um, the right. bribes that took place that that all comes from a lack of grit mm. and, 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 and the fact that you know my son can't do this my daughter can't do this and I got to jump in and, and do it for them right um, one statistic I read said that you know uh, college graduates are not making it to year one in their current job. After six or seven months, they're, they're hopping around to the next job because right. they're paired up with somebody in the next cubicle that they don't get along with or, or, or they need to advocate for themselves with their boss and, and they don't know how to do it. Yes. So these skills that we're teaching them, the collaborative problem solving that we're introducing to them is, is a lifelong skill 
that um, they're going to need. Hundred percent. Some one one thing we were talking about, Rabbi, before this podcast is uh, TCIS. If folks aren't uh, aware of TCIS, TCIS stands for Therapeutic Crisis Intervention in Schools. Uh, it started off just with TCI, Therapeutic Crisis Intervention. It was developed uh, by Cornell University, I think, in the '90s. I could be wrong about that, but I think in the late '90s. And at a certain point. Uh, they developed it, they modified it to apply to schools as well. And if folks have never checked it out, it's really, really applicable and relevant. Um, but uh, overall, it uh, it seeks to create a structure in which schools and parents can see crisis as an, as an opportunity and the fact that crisis is a necessary part of the growth uh, process. Um, they would say that crisis is the catalyst that disturbs old habits to create kind of new responses, having new, you know, uh, charting new growth paths uh, and new pieces of development. They would say that crisis is a normal and very essential part of, of life. And so our goal when it comes to crisis is not to simply avoid it, but to be proactive about how to deal with it in a healthy way. And then following it, um, can we be reflective about what we did, how we acted, how we responded, and how we can be better in the future. If we have that kind of dialogue going on as schools, I think we position ourselves in a much better place. And that, with that said, how have you, in your school, um, been transparent with parents, with students, to be able to, because if you just focus on one st- stakeholder group, you're not going to be able to affect the kind of change that you really want to. So how have you gone about that? Yeah. So l- let me answer that in two parts. First of all, the TCIS component here at Hank is that every week we have a two-hour meeting where uh, the associate principal, the assistant principals, the social worker, the school psychologist, um, uh, the head of people personnel come to this meeting and any name that's been mentioned that week of a child that's struggling is discussed and we put a plan in action. So, you know, where, where TCIS says plan for this, you know, difficulty that's coming up, we're proactive and we see that a child is about to fall apart mm-hmm. and we don't leave that meeting until a ticket item is, is issued. Uh, is it, am I taking care of right. it? Is right. Mrs. Barbara Deutsch, associate principal, taking care of it? Mm-hmm. Who's who's handling this one? Right. Ms. Honda. So th- that's been tremendously effective. As far as working with the parents, um, especially in the early <clears throat> years, this was very difficult for them um, to comprehend because they want the action. Mm-hmm. You know, my son got punched. What are you going to do about it? Right. And what I had to work on was this. I said, I didn't go to... Um, John Jay, I, I, I don't know criminology, I'm not <laughs> right. a judge, I'm right. not an FBI agent, right. I'm here to teach students. And, and when they started realizing that there's something to what we're saying was in circumstances where, you know, there was a lot of pressure to send the child home mm-hmm. and the parents said, okay, I guess my son punched somebody, you can send him home. And then I would get a phone call and the parents would say, you know what, I'm sending my son back to school tomorrow. Because what you didn't realize is the reason my son punched Johnny was he got punched in the bathroom and you guys couldn't be there. You didn't see that. Right. So so we were we were setting up here judicial systems and that's not, you know, God forbid if, if somebody commits a crime, you need fingerprints, you need to find that person mm-hmm. and you need to prosecute that person. Mm-hmm. That's not what a school is. And parent by parent started coming on board when we were able to prove to them that we're teaching your children skills that they're going to need 
um, in the entire life. Right. And they took responsibility. They apologized. They fixed things. They replaced things. Right. And this was more long-term effective then no problem. I'm not, I'm not going to touch you again because Rabbi Sadiq spoke to me. Right. But about a month from now when this wears off, right. all bets are off and I'm going to go after him. And again. I think what you're speaking about, something so deep and so important is if we approach any kind of problem with the thought that extrinsic motivation development is going to be what solves this, we're never going to be in the kind of place that we want to be in. That Students and adults are never going to be motivated by extrinsic things, right? If we can develop intrinsic motivation to do the right thing, whether it's because of empathy increasing uh, or a variety of things, if we, can de- if we can approach it from the perspective of we need to develop the student's intrinsic motivation to do the right thing, coupled with uh, you know, the lost at school kind of technique that we want to support and teach, then we're going to be in a good place, right? Josh, you're saying an interesting thing because Rav Noach Orlowick, the great Mashiach in Torah Or, once told me an amazing thing. I spent um, two days at a conference with him. He said, you know, he'd be amazed when he would be in classrooms observing and he would hear the teacher say, it is now 10 minutes into the class and I can't begin. It is now 15 right. minutes. And now, he said, they couldn't care less. Uh-huh. They don't care that you can't manage this class. You should yeah. have been a pharmacist. Right. You can't do this. Right. Why don't you open up a pizza shop? Right. But if you show that child why we're 10 minutes into this lesson and there's so many great things that I have to share with you mm-hmm. and I'm here to develop your character and I'm here to support you and I'm here to be your coach, right. that, that child is going to care. Mm-hmm. They're, not, they're not interested that you can't manage a classroom. Then, then find right. a different profession. That's, that's celebration. <laughs> if I'm a seventh grade boy and you can't manage the class, this is great, right? Uh, now, that being said, one of the things we also spoke about was whether it's Ross Green, whether it's Larry Thompson, or TCIS, which, quick side note, I hope to go into to de- uh, devote an entire podcast to TCIS in the future, so we're not uh, kind of uh, going away on this tangent fully now, but no matter what it is, whichever approach it is, it always says... As almost like a, a, a footnote at the end, by the way, if you haven't developed a really strong relationship with the student or the parent or whoever it is, none of this matters. It's not going to work. Absolutely. So how do you put that kind of big rock in the bucket first before you get into the other things? What's, and this is sort of coming back to like, how do you manage change as a school leader, right? Mm-hmm. But what was your approach with that and kind of making sure that teachers prioritize those yeah. relationship building opportunities? Yeah, uh, that's a, it's a really, really great point you're bringing up. You, you know, um, in the Nesiva Shalom, the Nesiva Chinuch, Rav Shalom Brzozowski, I, I, I call it the Bible um, to teaching. He says that um, Hashem, God, gave children a very special present. They have two antennas on top of their heads. And they know if a teacher loves them from five miles away. Well, whether you give them presents or prizes, and you're smiling, your full teeth, you're showing. Mm-hmm. If you're not authentic, and if you're not being sincere about it, they know you don't like them. Whereas adults, he says, in schools and businesses and everywhere else, get get fooled every day. Yes, they could be fooled by people. Yes. children cannot be. So it has to be real. So there were teachers who give prizes. I don't understand. I'm giving prizes, right? right. But because because really you don't you don't like yeah, that. Child. Yeah. You're trying to figure out a system to yes. keep them quiet. Yes. And you really so so we really impressed upon the teachers to get to know the students. And this is something I picked up in my Disney training. Mm-hmm. And the story goes is that you know when Walt um, Disney wanted to. 
um, open up the attraction, the Enchanted Tiki Room. Mm. If you've been there, you know that there are all these parrots on top and they're talking to each other and it's, there's a storyline in there. It, it's phenomenal. They, they look very real. He, he went to South America and he studied the birds. He, he had artists come up with, you know, as realistically as possible what these birds should look like. And they looked real. They were talking. And when they did the dry run, um, they said, yeah, Walt, we're ready to go. He goes, um, no, I, I don't like it. And they go, Walt, this, other than bringing real birds in here, I don't know what else you want from us. Walt said, when I'm watching them, I don't see their chest sinking in and out. Mm. They, they're not breathing. Right. Make them breathe. Right. And they went back to the drawing table and put a mechanism in those birds so they could also breathe to be real. Oh, so that part, of, um, that part of the training is called... Um, over managing mm. as opposed to micromanaging which has a negative connotation yes. but nobody wants yes. to be micromanaged right. over managing means don't miss any details yes is this child a yankee fan or a meth fan yes are they autistic do they like to cook right you know we have a child in the school who has put out her own dressing line salad mm-hmm. dressing line oh that's so because cool. you know we were able to work with with her parents to uh to de- de- develop the, this amazing skill and, and, and passion that she had. Right. So there are children who are, um, you know, musical. There are children who are... Mm-hmm. So w- the relationships are, are so easy to build upon because they're good at something. Yeah. Everybody has something that they're sure, good at. Sure, sure. But you have to pay attention to it mm-hmm. and you can't, you can't miss those details. Yeah. So they started paying attention. And they picked up on on those little nuances. And that's amazing. Things. Yeah, it's it. Who was the rabbi who you quoted again? So the the Nesivas Shalom, Rav Shalom Borzovsky, and the book is called Nesivei Chinuch. Yeah. And it, I I hold it's 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 the handbook for every teacher. I love it. And a lot of it is based on the principles of the relationship between a. Uh, a Rebbe and a Talmud yeah. and a teacher and a student. I love it. I always say, coming back to that, this is, uh, I always say that, you ever see the game uh, at the arcade, the dance revolution game where the kids, where the, it, yeah. the floor lights up and the kids have to step on it and kids yeah. are like incredible at it? I always say teaching is like dance revolution in the sense that you could teach somebody to be great at that game yeah. and hit all the steps and learn all the pedagogical scientific practices, but if you threw them out on the dance floor, it doesn't mean that they can dance. 100%. Because rhythm transcends the, the steps. They do this, they do this. Teaching is a, it's a different game. And I was also thinking there's another great book um, by the Heath brothers, Dan and Chip Heath, called uh, Made to Stick. One of my fa- That's my favorite book, actually, about teaching, and it's not about teaching at all. And one of the things they talk about in that book, uh, it's, uh, the book is all about how to get... Uh, certain why some ideas stick with you some commercials some jingles some pitches some te- you know lessons stick with you for the rest of your life and others no matter how profound in one year out the other you forget them the next day right and so one of the things they talk about is something they call the curse of knowledge that once you know something it is very easy to forget what it was like to not know that huh. And for teachers, very often, it's hard to genuinely remember what it was like to be in sixth grade, seventh grade, eighth grade, and what that experience is like. And so they kind of implore you to make sure that you're doing everything that you can, and in, in the Walt Disney stories uh, aligns with that, to you know see, see your class, see your being, see the experience through the eyes of, of your students, right? Yeah. The I other think- thing I mentioned in, the, in my sessions of building relationships is that, you know, we're, we ask children to do things that we would never do right now. We go mm-hmm. to water coolers right. and we can hang out there for 10 minutes. Right. You know, we work, you know, the whole atmosphere of working in a place like that. Yep. You know, my wife has a cousin who works for TD 
Ameritrade and he doesn't go in on Fridays or Mondays right. and works from his pajamas. Right, right. And and we want even with all uh, the rotational models yeah. that we have in schools and we do move kids around more than ever, we want them to be in the room for eight hours a day and yes. we question them about how many times they've gone to the bathroom and, and we question them about why they can't sit down. I would not want to be subjected to that and mm-hmm. yet we, we subject the students to that. So, correct, uh, correct. Uh, totally. This is uh, really an incredible conversation, and I think that inherently one that uh, does not have closure, one that should be continued, and one that should be uh, continued off the air between us, and hopefully uh, uh, by, with others too who are listening. So really value the time. I want to thank you for being uh, the first guest here. Uh, my my hope, my anticipation, and my hope is that uh, in in the time to come, in you know, in episodes coming, folks are going to look back on this episode the way you look back at early episodes of Seinfeld, saying like that's the same show before it found its voice. So. My expectation is that this is not the first time that we speak, um, but I really thank you for being the pioneer with me on this first episode, and uh, thank you, and keep up the great work that you're doing here at Hank. Thank you, Josh. Good luck to you. This is, uh, this is really exciting, and it's very needed, and I'm looking forward to listening to all the episodes. Awesome. And uh, anyone can uh, email me. Uh, Prisma's going to put my email uh, next to the podcast. Email me thoughts, questions, ideas for the podcast, or if you're interested uh, to be on or, or have questions answered, we'd love to have them. Thank you so much for listening, and uh, have a great rest of the day, great rest of the week. Thanks. That was an amazing podcast. Thank you, Josh. For contact info and links from today's episode, check us out at prisma.org. Follow us on social media at prismacjds. Subscribe to this podcast wherever podcasts are found. And check out the Prisma Knowledge Center, our online place to find resources, templates, articles, reports, and research on all things day school for day school leaders. Mm-hmm.